Welcome. It's great to have you all here with us. You know, the more I learn about science, the more it makes me appreciate the world around me. You know, for example, you know, the rotation of the Earth. You know, is that something you appreciate? I do. I, you know, I, the rotation of the Earth, you know, makes my day. Every day. <laughs> Every day. <laughs> so. Well, it's time to turn it over to somebody who also makes my day. It's, it's Dr. John with the Technology Spotlight. <laughs> Cockroaches are amazing. Yeah, you might not realize this, but it's actually a good thing when you see a cockroach. At least a lot better than when you look again and it's gone. You know, that's, that's not as good. And that's because they move amazingly fast. And researchers at UC Berkeley have been working on little robots the size of cockroaches that can move amazingly fast like cockroaches. So check this out. This is their little robot on the left and then a little queen ant for size comparison. You can see it's way down there. It's a little teeny thing. And it moves by um, vibrating that polymer in the middle when it gets a voltage applied to it. So it just moves up and down like that and that causes it to move forward. I'm going to show you a video and this is amazing. Check this out. This is real time. <laughs> and it's zooming around that maze. This isn't a cockroach, this is the robot. So <laughs> you can tell that it's really, really maneuverable and really fast. So let's take a closer look at how they did this. I'm going to show you another video, and the first few times it's in real-time speed, and then we'll look at it slowed down. So here it is. See how fast that is? Now in slow motion, you can see how the polymer is contracting one way and then releasing, and it causes it to vibrate like that, and it does it really, really fast to create that forward motion. And then it's got these two little feet in the front, that are kind of like seal flippers, aren't they? <laughs> and uh, it's going to take a while if we do the whole thing, but <laughs> you get the idea. So it's moving like that, and that vibration causes it to move forward. But the big question is, how do you turn? And not just turn, but turn on a dime really, really quickly. And that's where the really big challenge and where their new breakthrough it came. And uh, they were looking at the way that ants can move efficiently. If you look at an ant, they have these little teeny legs and these little teeny feet, and they wouldn't have enough friction to be able to move very well, and yet you see them crawling up the wall, and sometimes they can even crawl on glass, and that's pretty amazing. And if you look really close, you can see on their feet they actually excrete a little bit of fluid on the bottom of their foot that gives them that extra friction. And uh, it, it's some of the capillary action that makes that really work. Well, they could, didn't have a liquid on their robot, but they realized they could use electrostatic fields. So when they want the robot to turn one direction, they actually apply a DC voltage to the foot on that side, and it makes it move less, and that's what makes the robot turn so well. And they can turn amazingly sharp doing that. Now, one other thing that's really neat about this robot that's pretty similar to uh, a cockroach is how durable it is. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm going to show you what I mean. Okay, there it is. Oh, has this ever happened to you in the lab? You know, someone just walks by, but it keeps on going, right? 
oh, that's too much like the real thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And they actually put a little battery on the same robot, and it can run for 19 minutes with the little battery that it can actually carry, which is a big breakthrough because older versions, you know, they had to have the wires connected to it. And uh, in 19 minutes, it can clear, they say, 31 meters. You know, that doesn't sound that far, but that's a really long ways for a robot that big. <laughs> and so that thing's really moving. And uh, it's a lot like a cockroach, isn't it? Durable and fast and everything. At least it doesn't multiply really fast in my basement. <laughs> Actually, that'd be kind of cool, wouldn't it? <laughs> a lot of robots, right? <laughs> but that's all the tech we have the time for. Now it's time for Breakthrough Moments in Science with Tobias. Well, I'm super excited tonight because we get to talk about something pretty amazing and bright. And you know, when, when, we're, when we're talking about things that light up, things that shine light, you know, it makes you immediately think of Thomas Edison and the amazing light bulb. And you know, this, this story is actually gonna take from kind of where Thomas Edison pushed the world, because before the light bulb, I mean, we had like gas lamps, candles, and fires, and moonlight, but that kind of changed the whole world. And it changed to be able to use electricity to create light, so converting that electricity into something that made light. And so to start out, I wanna show you something pretty cool. And to do this, we're gonna do a quick light change with our special effects. Three, two, one, and then it begins. Happy Fourth of July. Okay, it's getting brighter, it's getting brighter. Okay, we all know what this is, right? This is it's basically a lightsaber <laughs> or a light needle. Give one of these to Nicholas Cage, you could be the new Darth Vader. Luke, I'm your dad. Okay. <laughs> But, but this tiny stick is starting to give off light, and it's not getting hot. I don't feel any heat, and we probably, okay, I know how this goes. I've held one of these things. Well, of course, and we can turn the lights back on now. Um, this tiny contraption is actually having a chemical reaction going on within it, and it's an incredibly efficient chemical reaction. The fact that I don't feel any heat means it's much more efficient than like an incandescent light bulb where it's literally burning something and giving off that light but also creating heat. And it turns out that what's happening in here is something that's very much a chemical magic. And it's where the electrons around an atom in the chemical reaction are getting excited and getting energy and when those electrons fall back down into their normal state, they give off a little proton of light. And so that's basically what's happening is electrons getting excited and then giving off that energy in the form of a photon. And so that's really important to understand as we go into this because we're gonna talk about a new way of making light. Now this starts in 1907 when a guy had silicon carbide crystal like this piece of rock and he connected this rock to a current and he noticed that he could generate these little yellow glows of light. So if you look right where that wire's touching, there's a tiny glow of yellow. And he noticed that it would give off this glow, and it wasn't really much more than that. It was kind of a, a neat discovery. It wasn't like, 
wow, put that in everything. We're going to light the way with this new glowing rock. It wasn't like that. It was, it was very dim. It was, you know, pretty simplistic. But that was the beginnings of something that was really big. Now, this wouldn't be pushed much further until many years later when two scientists were working on diodes. Now, diodes are basically a one-way valve in a, in a current. So if you had like a, a tube and you're pumping water into a tank up here and it's going up the tube, the water's going up the tube. If you cut the tube and you put a one-way valve in so the water can get pumped up, but if it starts coming back down, that valve will stop the water from coming back. That's kind of like how a diode works. The diode lets electricity flow one direction in the current, okay? So a diode is what these two scientists, and they were at Texas Instruments, and they were working on a diode. It was actually for lasers. And they noticed that some of the diodes they made gave off light when they ran a current through it. Now, it was invisible light. Now, this was real invisible light. Some of us like, yeah, <laughs> it gives off invisible light magic but it really gave off invisible light, and uh, invisible light called infrared. Now, if we look at this spectrum real quick, we can see the beautiful rainbow colors. Those are the colors that we can, of course, see with our eyes. But if you get lower frequency wavelength of light, eventually you get down to red, and then it drops below red, and now we can't see it, and they call that infrared or below red. And that's what color or the kind of light that this diode was giving off. Well, when they discovered this, this kind of started a new race for how can we make a diode that gives off light we can actually see, because that would be pretty amazing. Now, a, the way a diode works basically is they have two semiconductors together, and one semiconductor is negatively charged, one's positive, and it creates a barrier in the diode, okay? Now, that's important to remember for the next part that we're going to talk about, because now we jump to a company that was basically started and got huge by... Thomas Edison and his light bulb called General Electric. And at General Electric, Nick Hollenyak Jr. was working, who was kind of a new guy, and one of his jobs was to go to this light diode projects department where they were trying to figure out a way to get a diode that could give off more light, more energy, uh, basically higher frequency, and different departments were doing different things. Um, there was one side of it that they were making an infrared diode. Okay, so they had a diode, they'd run current through it, it would make that invisible light. Others were able to use different um, substances in their diode to give a very faint light, but they weren't having much success. So that's kind of where Nick came in. And now we have to kind of jump to how this works. And basically, they ha depending on what substance you use for these two semiconductors, the, the way that the diode works changes, okay? And that's what Nick started to look at. And we basically need to look at the structure. So if you have a, like an atom, and remember there's the atom and then there's electrons going around the nucleus. So if you have more than one of those atoms, like silicon was one that they used quite a bit, then you could connect multiple silicon atoms together using what they call covalent bonds. And so you have this atom and there's two electrons right here, okay? and it's connected to another silicon up there, and there's two electrons here. If you look at this graphic, you can see how all of these red electrons, those red dots are electrons, and they're connecting multiple atoms together until you have two, and then an atom, and then two, then an atom, it's, and that's how their covalent bond works, and they're happy, they're good, okay? They've got two in each spot, and that feels good. Everyone's happy, but 
what they would do is if you take one of those and you swap out some of the silicon atoms, they call it doping, man, that's dope. No, it's a different kind of doping. Um, they swap out some of the silicon for a different kind of atom, and they happen to do an atom that has one more electron than silicon does. So now when they stick that one in, now there's an extra electron. They stick another one in here. Now there's two extra electrons. They're not locked into those place, places between the atoms, and so they're free. And then on the other side of the diode, so there's that side that's got the, the negative charge with the electrons going around like this. On the other side, they do the opposite. They dope the silicon and swap out a few of the silicon atoms with an, an atom that has one less electron. So now instead of an extra one going around, now where there's supposed to be two here, one's missing. If there's two here, there's one missing. So there's holes on this side. And the holes actually move. Well, I guess not te technically the holes don't move, but when there's a hole here, there's another electron who's up here. And he's like, oh, I can't, I can't and it goes over. Now there's a hole here. And that hole moves around. So there's holes moving around here. And it's a positive charge. So you got the positive charge, the negative charge, OK? And then there's a barrier in the middle that these two semiconductors generate. And it's an electric field in the middle, OK? And, and they call it the, the depletion zone um, or the junction, the positive-negative junction in the middle. Now, why do we have to talk about all that? Because this gets us to the point of just like the glow stick of being able to get an electron to get in an excited state, so it's, it's going around its nucleus, and then it gets excited, and it's going around further, and then drop back down. Because when it drops back down to its normal state, that's when it can give off the photon. So how can we get these electrons to do that? So you got some free electrons over here going around. You got holes over here. Well, when you connect this diode to power, something interesting starts to happen. It starts to push the electrons across that junction over into the holes, thump, thump, they start, they don't really make that sound, okay. But they start jumping over into the holes, and it turns out that when the electrons are in this free state, and they change to the, those states where they're actually locked in around these nucleus points, th it takes less energy. And so as they change from the free state over into the holes, they lose some of their energy. And the electron actually loses some of that, gives off some of that energy in the form of a proton. And so that is where the light's coming from. A proton, a photon, photon, like a photon. No, we're not going to get into Star Trek. But they give off a photon. And so that's what's happening. And so it turns into what substance will you use for these two semiconductors? And so that's what they start experimenting with. And Nick basically came up with the idea, why don't we take some of what you guys are doing and what you guys are doing, let's mix it together and create a new substance that uses all of them. And they were like, well, it's very obvious that wouldn't work, so that's why we haven't done it. And so he decided to go try it, and they generated a red LED. And this would open up the new world of LEDs, and suddenly people started creating red LED products. Um, if you were a really cool person, you could have one of these cool watches with a cool LED display where it used this technology. Uh, being able to give off light using this, these diodes, and they named them light-emitting diodes, or LEDs. Now, eventually, it became the next process of how do we make them more efficient, 
and how do we get more colors? Now remember, red's right at the bottom of the light spectrum. And you go up, up, eventually they got yellow, and then they got green. And remember, this is changing the substance that's being used in the semiconductor. And eventually, um, a Japanese scientist would figure out how to make blue until finally, once they had blue, they could do all the colors up to white, which was pretty amazing. So really incredible stuff. Now, one interesting thing about Nick, after he did this, he was talking to the press. And he said, yeah, I, I think LEDs are the light of the future. I think they're, they're going to be so efficient and they're going to be so long-lasting that they will be the main light that we use. And I think someday we'll even have white LEDs. And people scolded him and said, stop lying about LEDs, okay? And yet, if we look around today, um, and I, I brought one real quick to show you. So this, if I put it up here, this has tiny, tiny LED panels on it. And if I turn this on, it looks white. And actually, the blue LED, the technology used in blue LEDs is so efficient that for a lot of LEDs today, they use blue. And then they put a kind of phosphor coating that takes some of the blue light and changes it into a different color and puts it out because blue LEDs are so efficient. And this one, um, I can adjust. It looks like I'm adjusting. Okay, we can go more blue. See, we're getting cooler, getting cooler. This is changing. It actually has two LEDs on here. One has one kind of phosphor over the blue. And then if I go this way, warmer, warmer, warmer. Or I don't know if you can see that, but it's getting warmer. Now it's changed to the other kind with a different phosphor on it. And it's taking some of those blue photons and changing them into a different color. Uh, but the, the efficiency of these LEDs is phenomenal and it's only getting better and better so pretty incredible stuff all based on chemistry so chemistry really can light the way thank you all right and now introducing roger billings That was really nice. They, they captured me in a so, jar. <laughs> I've got to tell you what I've been working on. What have you been working on? I've been working on shining light out of my eyes. Well, I can tell. No, you can't. Yes, I can. They're blue. I'm not doing it like right blue now. Eye. I'm not doing it. No, but I, I'm serious. Do you want to see it? I do. Okay. Oh, there is one catch. The light that I'm emitting is invisible. It has blue LEDs. No, I yeah, can see them. <laughs> like your blue efficient. eyes. <laughs> so you've probably heard about the exciting new thing at Acellus. We've got into a whole new section. And you know what it came from is inspired by Bill Lear, my mentor, mm -hmm. uh, we need a Learjet. We have a Learjet yeah. that, that you got for me. She said, hey, guess what? I bought you a Learjet. And I was so excited. 
Then I found out it doesn't have any engines, and it's to sit out there as a display. <laughs> yes, but it's a real Learjet. Put my helmet on, and I can sit there. <laughs> but uh, I got this idea, a Lear 75, that's what we need. Uh-huh. We need a Learjet. We do. Over the weather, all of these great things that it can do. And so I've been working on the Acellus flying program. For real? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, you know how we have the Acellus book? Uh-huh. Well, we've had to update the Acellus book now to include the new section on flying. I love flying. Do you like it? I love it. Well, then you need to check out this book. It's amazing. It's a flying one. Go ahead. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Oh, boy. Wow. I love flying. Oh, you're wearing a butterfly tonight. That's nice. <laughs> yes, and they yeah, came up. Butterfly, I think those are my people. <laughs> I, I think butterflies are amazing, but I'm trying to get into Johnny's cockroach thing. I don't like cockroaches, but that was amazing how they move. That was They can that move fast. Intriguing. You know, an experiment that's fun to do. Someone could do this for the science fair. So you tiptoe in the kitchen at night. You turn on the light. And you, you hear a noise, and there's nothing there. You turn off the light. Cockroaches are very fast. They're very, yeah, they scatter yeah. and the light goes on. Amazing little critters, aren't they? Mm-hmm. My heart's good. still beating quickly. That's good. It's good. It's good to have your heart beating. You know, once mine stopped, it was a very bad day. Not even going to go there. Love, dub, love. Dove, love, it, it's amazing that you can have this little pump. It is. This is there and pumps every day. How many times does a heart pump in a lifetime? Depends on the person. Yeah. Yours faster than mine, obviously. <laughs> no, anyway. Now. So uh, a lot of people have been asking, so how does the hydrogen car they, they don't get. They really what do we mean when we say cars run on hydrogen? And uh, been thinking about that, and it just so happened that right while I was thinking about this, we had a 4th of July drop in. <laughs> and on the 4th of July, uh, they have all those little fireworks stands. Yeah. So everywhere, boom, 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 boom. It's a perfect cover for doing some experiments. <laughs> <laughs> the one that you planned? Yeah, and yeah. so... I thought, well, they, they want to understand how hydrogen works. Well, this is hydrogen that did work. It worked, and now it's water. When hydrogen works, it becomes water. Hydrogen is a gas, like air. doesn't have any smell. But when it gets ignited, it burns, and it turns into water. Of course, when it first turns into water, the water is not liquid. It's steam. Then when it cools down, it becomes water. Okay? okay? So I thought, well, if they want to understand how it works, we should do an experiment. Mm-hmm. In science, when you want to know how something works, go ahead, form your hypothesis. My hypothesis is that if you light a balloon full of hydrogen, it will explode. And the explosion will be fire, and the fire will be making water, right? I knew that. That's how I first got interested in hydrogen a long time ago. 
Really? At least a year. <laughs> so <clears throat> my, my new hypothesis is if you fill a balloon with hydrogen, but you also put some oxygen in the balloon, then it will burn faster. What do you suppose that is? Because oxygen loves air. Oxygen is air. I know. <laughs> oxygen loves air. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. And you took chemistry from who? <laughs> okay. So it is mm -hmm. interesting. Imagine a balloon full of hydrogen. Okay. Inflate a balloon with hydrogen. It's like a helium balloon in that it's lighter than air and it'll float up. In fact, hydrogen balloons go up faster than helium balloons because hydrogen hydrogen is lighter than helium, okay? So <clears throat> it will float. But if you figure out a way to ignite a hydrogen balloon, then the hydrogen catches on fire. But inside the balloon is pure hydrogen. Pure hydrogen won't won't burn. If you put a spark inside a hydrogen balloon, it won't ignite it because there's no oxygen. So you have to ignite it on the edge, and then the hydrogen burns, but it can only burn as fast as the hydrogen and air can mix. And so we get a little pop, and we've done that before, okay? Mm -hmm. So my hypothesis this year was, what if you put some oxygen, pure oxygen, inside the balloon with the hydrogen, but not any ignition until you're ready? Then what will happen? So I tried an experiment. We filled up a balloon, 24-inch diameter balloon. We filled it up with hydrogen and oxygen. And then we had a little piece of nichrome wire on the outside hooked up to a long extension cord. So we'd hook it up to a battery. It would heat up the wire, and that would ignite the hydrogen. We were going to have a great experiment. So we tried it. We tried it on the 4th of July when there was a lot of noise covering, just in case. And it went, <laughs> it went, and one of the guys was filming it. So we looked at his film, we slowed it down, slowed it down, and what we found out is that as the wire got warm, it melted the balloon, the balloon came open, all of the gas squirted out, and when it finally got hot enough to ignite the hydrogen, the hydrogen was gone. <laughs> and we got, phew, <laughs> literally. That was the first experiment. That was when we were at the bottom of the, optimization, <laughs> the optimism curve, right? So we talked about different ways, different ways, different ways we could do it. And Abe said, why don't we put the spark inside the balloon? So we figured out how to do that. The problem was, how do you run a wire into the balloon without causing the gas to leak out? And boy, this really put a lot of pressure on the rubber bands and cable ties. But we did it. We did it. We did it. And uh, we got a different result. Fortunately, thanks to the miracle of modern photography, we can share that. Awesome. Would you like to see it? I'd love to see it. Okay. Let it roll. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to go out here, open these valves. We've got tubes out to it. We'll shine the light on it so you can see the balloon blow up, I mean inflate. And then we're going to 
start at seven. We're going to all count down loud. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. And then Abraham's going to do his magic. We've got a little igniter. And hopefully something's going to happen. So it's right out here. I'd like it if you'd stay back about this far, okay? I'd really like that. Seven, six, five. Okay, that is the answer to the question. How does a hydrogen engine work? That's the answer. Yeah, because you mix hydrogen and oxygen, oxygen and air, uh -huh. inside the engine, and the piston, which is the part of the engine that goes up and down, is squoze into a tight little chamber, then you fire an igniter by shooting a spark in the spark plug, then it ignites and it pushes the piston down hard, and that's how drives the car. That makes sense? Mm -hmm. You got that figured out? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Good. And so the oxygen reacts with the air. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be talking about that for a long time, won't we? Okay, let's talk. Okay, uh, there's, there is one little thing though I'd kind of like to get off my heart tonight. Oh dear. We've, we've been talking about hearts, <laughs> oh dear. tender little hearts. I have a tender heart. Oh yeah? But there's something that's kind of bothering me. Oh. Maybe we should go off camera for a minute. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay. Let's talk. I didn't like the way you were kissing the cameraman. <laughs> Are you jealous? Oh, we're still on. <laughs> that was private. <laughs> Seriously, what? Um, oh, brother. Uh, <laughs> Some of us just do things like that. <laughs> well, see, what happened was that we were, we were giving rides in the hydrogen car. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, for the 4th of July, uh -huh. well, let's just roll it. It, it explains itself. <laughs> The guy not in the hat, see? <laughs> Kids love hydrogen cars. Shooting that. Was that Tobias filming? No. Yep, yeah. maybe. <laughs> okay, well, anyway. So, hydrogen is a gas and it, it does explode. And it really is interesting that that fireball that we saw in that film was water being born. 
It was hydrogen and oxygen turning into water. So it literally becomes water when it burns. <clears throat> yes. Like that. And then if you put electrodes in it mm -hmm. and run electricity into the water, you can tear it apart and it bubbles off hydrogen and oxygen. So you can make water burning hydrogen. You can make oxygen and hydrogen by electrolyzing or electrocuting, electrolyzing water. Electrocuting water, I've never and thought of it is, that way. Yeah, well, it's, it's like that. In, uh, <clears throat> in the Billings Electrolyzer, uh -huh. which is a technology that, uh, that we have developed through about four different generations of technology, but we electrolyze the water and produce the hydrogen, but then hydrogen comes out at just normal pressure, air pressure, which you can't really store very easily. So we redesigned the electrolyzer and the current Billings electrolyzer produces hydrogen at 500 pounds pressure. And so you can go right into your storage tank. And 500 pounds pressure is the perfect pressure to recharge a metal hydride storage container. And metal hydrides talk about or use those covalent bonds <clears throat> that we were talking a lot tonight about. The covalent bonds. Covalent bond means that two atoms have reacted together in a way that they are sharing electrons. So a covalent bond means it's a weak bond in which the electrons are being shared. An ionic bond is where one of the atoms stills the electron and the other one just sits there and looks. I remember when I had the electron. <laughs> and that would be something like table salt, oh. sodium chloride. In that case, chlorine's doing that electron. Sodium's so good. <laughs> so, and it's very hard to tear something like salt apart. Compared to our hydrides, we used iron titanium hydride, so they would react with hydrogen and then form a bond. The metallic looking powder, which was, was the metal alloy, would react with the hydrogen gas and then the powder would turn white, like uh, face powder or like salt, but, but very fine salt. And the bond, the chemical bond that held the hydrogen by the hydride was a covalent bond, and so we could take just a little bit of heat from the radiator water or from the exhaust of the hydrogen engine and pull the hydrogen out when we needed it to run the engine. So you could inflate the tank, and if it was a tank that size and you put the hydrogen in at 500 PSI, it would hold some, but not enough to go anywhere. But if it's got the metal powder filling up, so the tank's clear full of metal powder, then the powder would start turning white as it charged, and it would hold much, 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 much more hydrogen than if it was just an empty tank because it would make a chemical bond. And once the hydrogen react with the metal alloy, it was very compact. It was kind of neat. Metal hydride tanks are amazing because they're very safe. And I have run a metal hydride tank in my car, in the postal jeep that delivered the mail, in two buses, and in a car for Los Alamos National Laboratory, and in one for Mercedes, 
It's a neat way to go. And you're smiling. <laughs> I am smiling. It's a habit I'm working on this year. Is it because of my <laughs> invisible light? I love that. My, no, I was thinking you have all these patents, which um, you had many years ago. But I had them many years ago. <laughs> yes. How sad. Okay, anyway. Anyway, anyway. Mm -hmm. I was wondering mm -hmm. how you um, decided which metals to try to put together for the hydride. We've been asked a very challenging question. <laughs> and what was the question again? The question is, how did you determine which metals to try? Do you see how intelligent yeah, I look in look, these glasses? Yeah, you look fabulous. <laughs> you look so fabulous. You know, the chemistry of metal hydrides is actually a pretty complicated chemistry. Yeah. We like to be able to use chemical models to try, try and predict what would work well. Mm -hmm. And it worked pretty well when you're using one metal reactant with hydrogen. Actually worked quite well. When you try to do two metals together, it got a little more complicated. When you tried to do three or four or five metals together, it was almost impossible with the science we have at least, to be able mm -hmm. to predict what the hydride properties would be. So the way we did it, we got a little tank about this size, we filled it up with a metal alloy, put a tube in the top, ran hydrogen in. To, to activate it, you have to heat it, pull a vacuum, heat it, pull a vacuum three times, and that's to pull off any oxide coating around the metal. And then you charge the hydrogen and you see how fast it'll charge, how much it will hold. We could calculate how much it should hold, but we would then get a set of properties. And to run one alloy took about two days of research. Wow, lots of patience. Yeah, it took a lot of manpower. And we wanted to test about 200 alloys. <laughs> and we wanted to do alloys of differing percentages, so it had been like 10 years. So we invented the auto Hydrider. I've never heard of that. Auto. Auto, I know, that's why you come to Science Live. I know. I'm making up stuff live. <laughs> no, no, it was called that. It really was that. It was the auto hydrider. And we'd take a sample, we'd put it on an auto hydrider, and we'd turn it on. And the computer would run all the tests. It'd run it faster, run it overnight. So we had a whole lineup of these auto hydriders trying all kinds of samples. And that's how we finally ended up with the iron titanium manganese alloy that we used. See, I never knew that. Yeah, and the auto hydrider had to have a computer to control it. And in that time period, we had mainframes. Which are what million dollars what? a month. A mainframe is a giant IBM computer that costs a million dollars a year for maintenance. So it's like this big? Yeah, it's like a whole room. Like a whole room. Yeah, and it's not as powerful as my iPhone. <laughs> yeah, and wow. if you want to talk to it, uh -huh. you take a box full of punch cards. What's a punch card? You punch card? hole in. It's a card. It's uh -huh. a cardboard card that you punch holes in certain places, and that tells the computer what you want it to do. And since you can only put a little bit on a card, you have to have a whole box of them. In fact, the program I used to run for my Ford study I had three boxes of cards. It was about, oh, as I recall, about 750 cards. And I'd take it over to the window, because they wouldn't let us go in with a computer. Uh-uh. It was a bare button. We could look through the window and we'd hand it to them. 
and they'd say, okay, uh, we'll run this for you tonight if we're not too busy. During the day, the big shots got to use the computer. Oh. I was one of the little shots. I was a student, <laughs> and so run it. And the next day, I was so excited, I couldn't sleep, couldn't sleep. I'd go to get my printout, it'd come out, I'd open it up, and they had these big sheets that would print out, and it said, syntax error. Failed to run. That's so sad. And then I find out one card was printed wrong. I had to find the card. They had machines that would punch the holes, so. Okay. New card, put it in, take by. Put them at the window. Okay, we'll run it. We'll run it for you tonight if we have time. Next day, we didn't have time last night. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> but we couldn't use that to run these, and so that's when I heard about the microprocessor developed by Intel. It was like a little computer on a chip, and so we got one, and we made it run this autohydrider. And that was the beginning of the Billings computer. Wow. When I saw what that little microprocessor, it was like a whole computer and it was a chip, I realized everybody's going to have one of those. So literally hydrogen is part of the computer field. Well, yeah. hydrogen, <laughs> <laughs> hydrogen, bless its heart, it's hydrogen into water making heart, brought me into the computer field two ways project that I did for Ford Motor Company to learn how to get rid of the nitric oxide, which we've talked about, and the autohydrider, and that gave me an opportunity to learn about it. We ran these samples, and I realized everybody is going to have a computer. I told my friends that. Guess what? Everybody's going to have their own computer. That's crazy. That's insane. Man, I dare you to find anybody that doesn't have a phone. <laughs> I know. Doesn't have a computer. It's we true. can't live without them. We, we have a can't. computer in our toaster. Mm -hmm. We have a computer mm -hmm. in our air conditioner. We have a computer in our Ford truck. Oh, touchy subject. <laughs> you know, we have a nice Ford factory here in Kansas City. We do. And we now have Ford trucks in every parking lot in Kansas City. It's they just do. full of them. Really, all lined it's up. It's really something else. And they're, they're brand, brand new. new. Yeah. They're sitting there rusting in the rain because they don't have a microchip. They don't have that little chip like I use for my auto hydrator. And now without that chip, they can't uh, run the truck. That's kind of sad. And it's, it's a tragedy. It is. It's a real tragedy. And it's interesting what happened. The, the company that makes those microprocessors is in Japan. And the factory burned down. They had a fire. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and it burned down the factory. It takes a while to build one of those. And so all of a sudden, the enormous number of chips coming out of that factory are not available. And so they shut down all of that. You know, it's true. In a toaster, we now have a microprocessor. A refrigerator, have a microprocessor. Mm -hmm. And what does a microprocessor do in your fridge? It goes beep, 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 if you don't shut the door in a certain amount of time, <laughs> I think. Or I could just close the door. Maybe we've gone a little too far. We've got a microprocessor in our watch. We have a microprocessor in our We have 
that I think the average person probably has about 25 or 30 microprocessors contributing mm -hmm. to your quality of life. Mm -hmm. So in that blue Model A Ford that we were watching. You mean that hydrogen yes. car, the world's it first hydrogen car? It was fantastic, yeah. Mm -hmm. Did was, you get was, to ride it? I, yes, I did. I loved it. You loved it or the photographer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I... <laughs> It's scientists are non-emotional creatures. We don't get jealous. I was going to say, yeah, I mm. sense a little bit of no, emotion. We, we don't. We just don't. <laughs> We're absolutely objective. You have to be in science. Really? Yes, because you don't ever want to imagine results. You want to only observe results when they're real. Mm. So mm. Everyone's a, every scientist is a Spock. I would like to say Spock is a scientist. <laughs> I like Spock. Do you hear what I'm saying? Okay. I like Spock. So, but in the back of that bed were two cylinders. And that was not hydride, was it? No. No. No, because that car was built for the science fair when I was in high school. For real? Yeah, and I went everywhere, but we didn't have any hydrides in my high school. <laughs> Those were welding cylinders. Okay. You have no idea how good and how fast I had to talk to get my mother to buy those cylinders because I was too young. I like to hear it. I would too. <laughs> Did she know what it was for? I will tell you, yeah, of course. I, I will admit that the first few times she said no. <laughs> <laughs> but you told her it was for your the Model A truck? I told her that it was for science and that we were, yes. It, it turns out that she was very supportive. Remember, I started building that hydrogen car project when I was in the 10th grade. Wow. And it didn't work, it didn't work, it didn't work. And so finally I put it away and did a different project. In the 11th grade, I pulled it out again and worked on it and worked on it. It wouldn't work. And the way that it wouldn't work, I had a lawnmower engine, which I've shown you, and it had a rope that wrapped around the engine, and then you pull it to make it start. And I figured the reason it wouldn't run was because I didn't have a good carburetor. A carburetor is, is a device that mixes the right amount of fuel and air together. If you don't have the right ratio, they won't burn. I figured I don't have the right ratio, so I invented a carburetor that consisted of a large glass flask, which I got from the glass blower at the university, helping him repair glassware. It had a stopper in it, and I had it so it would bubble up through a little bit of water, and it would make exactly the right mixture of air and hydrogen. And then I ran it over through a piece of rubber tubing to the lawnmower engine. It almost sounded like it fired a little bit. And then, you know, and it stops turning and then it turns back just a little bit. And then a fire came out through the rubber tube and it went over to the big glass flask that had a perfect mixture of hydrogen and oxygen. 
excuse me, hydrogen and air, which included some oxygen. And Did it make a big boom? It made a noise <laughs> which seemed to trouble Mrs. Billings. <laughs> and so that ended my hydrogen experiments for that year. Uh, I was fortunate though because before I did the experiment, realizing, you know, glass, couldn't that be dangerous? So I got a large military jacket my father had, <laughs> wrapped it up, tied it up with a rope so it was nice and safe. So it was loud, but it didn't hurt anything except the jacket. And uh, that ended my experiment. It was finally in my senior year my last year of high school, my last chance of the science fair, that the engine started to work. And why wouldn't it work before? It wouldn't work because in an engine, you pull in an air fuel charge, you compress it, then you ignite it, and when I would pull in the air fuel charge, it would auto-ignite before I even fired the spark. And I didn't realize this until a year later when I was in college, but the reason it would ignite it is because carbon, when it's warm, is a catalyst that can ignite hydrogen. And the lawnmower engine I had had been mowing lawns for probably a decade and was so built up with carbon, and that carbon would ignite the hydrogen, so every time I tried to start it, it would backfire. And the way that I finally solved the problem is I decide I need to have a way to get this thing to keep turning while I try things. So I mounted it on a wood box. I connected it with a fan belt. Do you know what a fan belt is? Mm -hmm. That's like when a movie star has a fan club. <laughs> Only it's not that. It's a belt out of rubber that I hooked up to an electric motor that I could plug in the wall, and I made a switch so I could turn it on. I turn on the electric motor. It'd start turning. It turned the engine, even though there was no fuel. So then I turn on the hydrogen, and as the hydrogen went into the engine, bam, pop, 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 bam, 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 like that balloon. In the, we were doing it in my chem lab at my high school, and it did that, and I'm trying different things. And just, I had safety glasses. And it just kept popping, 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 and then all of a sudden, it quit popping, and it ran perfect. I bet your heart beat like those butterflies coming out of that book. Yeah, my heart ran perfect too. <laughs> it did. But what I realized now had happened uh -huh. is the hydrogen was burning inside that chamber and it was burning the carbon out. And eventually, I tore the engine apart and it was clean as a whistle. It had burned out all the carbon. If you want to clean up your old engine, just run some hydrogen for a while and it'll burn all of the carbon out, carbon buildups. But then it ran perfect. And in fact, then I could use the rope. Um. And that's what I did for the science fair. People would come through. I wrapped the rope around. You want to see it run? Turn on the gas. And then they could smell the exhaust like we did here a few mm -hmm. weeks ago, right? And it was real easy to start. And then when I won the opportunity to go to the International Science Fair, big deal, took my hydrogen cylinder on the airplane. You did? <laughs> they wouldn't let me. So I had to get a hydrogen cylinder from the welding shop in Dallas, Texas, which is where the science fair was that year. Got the cylinder, 
took it to the auditorium, and they wouldn't let it go inside the auditorium. <laughs> so there I was with my engine, my pitchers, and they said, well, does it run? It would if we had hydrogen. But I thought about it, yeah. This is how you pull the rope. <laughs> it's really, really, really interesting that when the engine finally ran, and I took a sample of the exhaust from the engine, because here is an engine that makes no pollution. It's just pure water vapor, no pollution at all. And I got a sample to prove it, and I took it over to the chemistry lab, and we ran it through a gas chromatograph, which is a thing that'll measure the constituents of a gas, and a big spike came out on the meter that said that we were making nitric oxide, which is a terrible pollution. Remember, nitric oxide is what some people would consider the worst pollutant in Los Angeles. And it's made by heating up air. Air is made of oxygen and nitrogen, 20%, about 20% oxygen, the rest nitrogen. And those don't normally react, but when you heat them above about 2,400 degrees, like lightning does, like the hydrogen engine does, then some of them do react and it forms a chemical called NO, which means no want, no want this. <laughs> NO, nitric oxide, is bad stuff. In sunlight, NO reacts with oxygen and forms NO2, nitrogen dioxide, which reacts with water and forms nitric acid, which is bad stuff. That's why they don't like it. And since it's the light that turns it from NO to NO2, NO2, by the way, is kind of a brown gas. Mm. Uh, they call it photochemical smog, and it's, it's bad stuff. And my engine was making it like crazy. So I went to the science fair saying, my hypothesis is if you run an engine on hydrogen, there'd be no pollution. But my experimental results are we got a lot of pollution. We have more nitric oxide than from a gasoline engine because we had a higher peak temperature. Very honest. And I remember one judge coming through and saying, so your pollution-free engine makes pollution. I said, yeah. And he says, well, I commend your integrity. <laughs> And you know, there is a great lesson there for science. Scientists know that you've got to be objective and you've got to report the data straight up. If it doesn't work, then you report that it doesn't work. And figuring out what doesn't work is how the scientific community eventually discovers how to make it work. And the next year, with a grant from the Ford Motor Company at the university, I was able to find out that if you spray just a little bit of water in with the hydrogen, it eliminates all of the nitric oxide. And you can get the water out of the tailpipe, water that you're making by burning the hydrogen, and I have a U.S. international patent on water injection in a hydrogen engine. So, Integrity is a big part of it. Um, integrity is also a big part of education, of obtaining an education. Do you want a diploma or do you want the knowledge that the diploma represents? I mean, both are valuable. 
But I suggest to you, if, if you had to choose, the knowledge is more valuable than the diploma. When I was taking physics as a freshman, because of my work on hydrogen energy, I was very excited to learn about thermodynamics. And the first class I had that was going to teach thermal was physics. And I happened to be in a school where my instructor was one of the authors of the physics manual, the physics book that we were using. It's a very good physics book. And I could hardly wait for the chapter on thermodynamics. And then one day he got up and says, next week I'm going to a technical conference so there'll be no class. And so that we don't get off schedule, we're going to skip the chapter on thermodynamics. And my physics class cheered. And I raised my hand. That's why I took this class. And Dr. Merrill said to me, well, I'll tell you what. You come to my office, and I will teach you that chapter one-on-one. -on -one. And I'm so grateful he did. Thermodynamics is a wonderful subject. And it's interesting. The thermal as taught by a chemist is different than thermal as taught by a physicist, which is different than thermal as taught by a chemical engineer or as taught by a mechanical engineer. I learned thermal four different ways. And I'll tell you what, they don't even use the same variables. In chemistry, thermal is about everything coming to equilibrium. In chemical engineering, they didn't hear about equilibrium. In the real world, it's all dynamic, you know, and it's partial reactions, and it's fun. But anyway, the knowledge is the real value of your education. Knowledge empowers you to do the things you want to do. And when I'm driving that little car, and I'm thinking how many hours it took me to be able to learn the little pieces of technology to be able to do that. And throughout my life, I've had the wonderful pleasure of, of seeing wonderful scientific achievements of my teams and myself. And I'm so grateful for my educators that made me buckle down and study. And if I can pass that on to you tonight, mm -hmm. so that you'll know that Oxygen does not react with air. <laughs> I was having a hard time with this English language, I know. by the way. Electrical engineer, <laughs> this chemistry stuff, right over their heads. <laughs> Ironically, it was my favorite class, uh -huh. chemistry class. Well, I just like saying, conclusion, butterflies can fly. <laughs> they can and make your heart beat fast. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Study hard. It's worth it. See you next time.